The Prodigal Son, an exposition by Arthur W. Pink, Luke 15, 11-32. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And he divided to them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave to him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again, he was lost, and is found. And they began to be merry. An Exposition Before we attempt to expound this portion of scripture in detail, let us first make a general observation. Who does the prodigal son represent? Is it an unregenerate sinner, or a backsliding believer that is in view? There is a division of sentiment upon this point. Personally, we have no doubt whatever that in this part of the parable of the salvation of the lost, the Lord Jesus pictures an unregenerate sinner. Our interpretation will proceed along this line. But before we give it, let us first present some proofs that it is not a backsliding believer that is before us. First, the whole context shows plainly the class that is portrayed throughout the entire chapter. In the two first verses of Luke 15, we are told, Then drew near to him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Here then, Christ is seen in connection with the lost. It was an answer to this criticism of the Pharisees and scribes that our Savior proceeded to utter the parable which has brought life and peace to countless souls since then. And in this parable, the Lord is not warning his disciples against the danger of backsliding, but is vindicating himself for receiving sinners. That part of the parable, which treats of what has been termed a prodigal son, begins at the eleventh verse. But what we have here and in the verses to follow is only a continuation of what the Lord said as recorded in the previous verses. In these previous verses, he depicts a man going after a lost sheep until he finds it, and also a woman who loses one piece of silver and who sweeps the house and seeks diligently until she finds it. Surely there can be no doubt whatever as to who is figured by the lost sheep and the lost piece of silver. Surely it is obvious that these pictures an unregenerate soul and not a backsliding believer. In the third place, the words which the father spoke when the wandering son returned furnish another proof that it is a sinner, and not an erring son who is before us. He said, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, 
The best robe here speaks of the robe of righteousness, which each sinner receives when he first comes to Christ. Had it been a backsliding believer, his need would be to have his feet washed. Finally, the father's statement concerning his son is proved positive that it is no erring Christian that is here in view. The father said, For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. This is conclusive to all who believe that the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. Romans 11 verse 29 Every believer is in present possession of eternal life, which is received from God as his gift. Romans 6 verse 23 And this gift is never recalled. If then the believer is in present possession of eternal life, he can never die. That the father spoke of the returning prodigal as one who was dead and who was lost has proved positive that an unregenerate sinner is here in view. Before given a detailed exposition of the closing verses of Luke 15, we would point out that this chapter does not contain three parables, as is commonly supposed, but instead one parable in three parts. In verse 3 we are told, He spake this parable to them, saying, What man of you have an hundred sheep, and so on. Again, in verse 8, we read how that the Savior continued to say without any break, Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lost one piece, and so on. Then in verse 11 it is recorded, and he said a certain man had two sons. This parable as a whole has to do with the salvation of a lost sinner, and much of its beauty is missed by failing to discern its unbroken unity. It gives a beautiful and marvelous picture of the concern of each of the three persons of the Holy Trinity in the salvation of the lost. In the third part of this parable, we are shown a sinner coming into the presence of the Father. But in order to appreciate the preciousness of this, we must pay careful attention to what precedes. In the second part of this one parable, we have brought before us in figurative form the work of the Holy Spirit. And this we know is what precedes the coming of any sinner into the presence of the Father. And on what is the work of the Holy Spirit based? The answer is upon the work of Christ. And this is what we have portrayed in the first part of the parable where the shepherd is in view. We pause to notice very briefly a few details in connection with these two things. In verses 4 to 7, we see the work of Christ as a good shepherd. First, he is the one having an hundred sheep. He is the one to whom the sheep belong. They belong to him because they are given to him by the Father. Second, he is the one that is said to go after that which is lost. This pictures Christ leaving his home on high and coming down to this earth where his lost sheep were. Third, next, we are told that he goes after the lost until he finds it. This brings us to the cross, a place of death, for it was there the sheep were, and only there could they be found. Fourth, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. This tells of the tender care of the Savior for his own, and also assures us of the safe place which we now have in him. It is blessed to know that... In Isaiah 9 verse 6, where Christ's future kingship is in view, we are told the government shall be upon his shoulder, the singular number being used, whereas it is a plural number when the place which a sheep has is mentioned. Shoulder upholds the government of the world. Shoulders give double guarantee to our preservation. Fifth, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. How wondrous is this! We can understand that the sheep could find abundant cause to rejoice over the shepherd, but that the Savior, 
the self-sufficient one should have occasion to rejoice in the salvation of poor, hell-deserving sinners passes knowledge. Sixth, and when he comes home, this tells of the blessed issue of the Savior's work and the happy success of the shepherd's quest. Notice that heaven is here termed home, a figure that will repay prolonged meditation. Seventh, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. How this reveals to us the heart of Christ. Not only does he rejoice over the salvation of the lost, but he will call upon the angels to share his joy. In verses 8 to 10, we see the work of the Holy Spirit. Notice three things. First, that the woman who here prefigures him lights a candle ere she was lost. How accurate the figure. This is precisely what the Spirit of God does in his operations. He uses a light, and that light is a lamp of life. The Word of God, the entrance of the very words of which gives light. In the second place, unlike the work of the shepherd, which was on the outside, the sphere of the woman's operations was on the inside the house. So the external work of Christ was done for us, but the work of the Spirit is done in us. In the third place, the gracious patience and blessed perseverance of the Holy Spirit in his divine work within those who by nature are rebels is here portrayed. In effect, we are told, the woman will seek diligently till she find. The result of the first part of this parable, which portrays the work of Christ, and the second part of the parable, which depicts the work of the Holy Spirit, is brought before us in the third part of the parable, which shows us the poor sinner actually coming into the presence of the Father. This parable then tells us three things about the Godhead, the shepherd's toil, the Spirit's search, and the hearty welcome which the Father gives to the sinner that comes back to himself. But this is not all. The striking thing is that we have here a marvelous representation of the mystery of the Holy Trinity. As already pointed out, Luke 15 does not give us three parables, but instead one parable in three parts. And each one of the three parts brings before us separately each of the three persons in the Godhead, so that we have here one and three and three and one. We are also taught three outstanding things in connection with the sinner. In the first part of the parable, he is seen under the figure of a sheep that is lost. This intimates the obduracy of the sinner, who like a lost sheep is unable to find his way home, and who, if he is to be restored, must be sought. In the second part of the parable, he is seen under the figure of a coin, and is lost. Here we have an inanimate object, in other words, that which accurately portrays the solemn fact that the sinner is spiritually dead. In the third part of the parable, he is seen under the figure of a dissolute son, away in the far country. This gives us a representation of the natural man's moral condition, alienated from God and wayward at heart. It is the third part of this parable which is now to engage our attention. That part of the parable which views the sinner coming into the presence of God. It is the human side that is now made prominent. Here we are shown the sinner's consciousness of his need. He began to be in want. Here we are shown the sinner exercising his will. I will arise. Here we are shown the sinner repenting. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and am no more worthy to be called your son. 
But let it be borne in mind that before the sinner does any of these three things, God has previously been at work upon him. Let us not forget that in this wonderful and blessed parable, the Lord Jesus gives us the divine side first, before he makes mention of the human side. Therefore, let those who desire to follow his steps give careful heed to this principle. We shall now consider 1. He had a substance. Proportion. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And he divided to them his living, verses 11 and 12. In addition to our natural endowments or talents, and our time and strength, God has given to everyone of his creatures a soul. This soul may be regarded as capital in hand with which to do our trading both for time and eternity. It is the most valuable portion, for it is worth more than the whole world. It is worth more than the whole world because it will enter after the world and all its works have been burnt up. This parable begins by bringing into view the sinner before he goes out into the far country, or to use the language of the parable before he took his journey into a far country. It was while in the father's house that he received his portion of goods, and that he, the father, divided to them his living, so that the portion received was a living portion. This can only refer to the creature prior to his birth into this world, receiving from the Father of Spirits, Hebrews 12, verse 9, a living soul. Number two, he took his journey into a far country, verse 13. The far country is a world which is away from God, so far away that the whole world lies in the wicked one, James 5, verse 19. As a result of Adam's sin, man was separated from God and all of Adam's descendants into this world, alienated from the life of God, Ephesians 4, verse 18. There is a great gulf between the thrice holy God and the sinful creature, which none but Christ can bridge. The sinner is away from God in his heart, in his thoughts, in his ways. How much this explains. It explains atheism. Atheism is simply man's attempt to hide from the discomfiture of God's acknowledged presence. Men will give you many reasons as to why they are infidels, agnostics, and atheists, but these reasons are in reality only so many excuses. Luke 14 verse 18 The real reason is that men are determined to get away from the avowed acknowledgement of God. This explains the general neglect among men of the Bible. They will give you many reasons as to why they do not read it. They cannot find a time. There is much in it they cannot understand, and there are so many conflicting interpretations of its contents, and so they leave it alone. Men esteem the Holy Word of God less highly than they do the writings of their fellow sinners. And yet the scriptures treat of many subjects of profound importance and vital moment. They furnish the only reliable information concerning the origin of man, the nature of man, the purpose of man's existence and the life beyond the grave. Impelled by an uneasy conscience, many will read a chapter in the Bible now and again. But that is all. And the real reason for this is because the Bible brings man into the presence of God. And that is the very last thing the natural man desires. What a proof is this, then? that he is in the far country, that at heart he is away from the Father. This explains why it is that sinners as such have no delight in prayer. Real prayer is a direct speaking to God through the mediation of Christ. It is that which brings us into contact and communion with the great invisible. 
But the sinner has no heart for this. He finds no enjoyment in pouring out his soul to God, if he prays at all. Prayer is an irksome task and a mere repetition of words. He'd rather do almost anything than pray, and the reason for this is because he wants to keep away from God. This explains why it is that the sinner has no real delight in the public worship of God. It is true. He may go to church. A vague sense of duty may take him there, or it may be from force of habit acquired through a Christian upbringing, or it may be an uneasy conscience which renders him a punctual attendant, nor is he always an uninterested hearer. When the preacher delivers his message with oratorical fire, and with rhetorical embellishments that are pleasing to the ear, he is not only interested, but gratified. But let the preacher forget his rhetoric. Let him leave his generalizations. Let him address himself directly to the sinner's conscience and say, Thou art the man. Let him be brought into the presence of God, and the poor unsaved listener will at once be rendered uneasy, and it is more than doubtful whether he will return any more to hear that preacher. Number 3. He wasted his substance with riotous living. Verse 13. Pointed out above, the substance is a living soul which every man receives from his Creator, and which is to be regarded as capital in hand, with which to do his trading both for time and eternity. And here is how the sinner, every sinner, uses a portion that he has received from the Father of Spirit. He squanders it. Let it be said emphatically that this prodigal son is not merely a representation of some particular class of sinners, who are more wicked than the fellows whose offenses against God are more flagrant than the general run of sinners, but instead the prodigal son pictures a course that is followed by every descendant of Adam, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. From the hour of his birth, the natural man has never cherished a single feeling, exercised a single thought, or performed a single deed that is acceptable to God. So far as eternity is concerned, he is spiritually barren. His life is fruitless. But not only has he ignored the claims of God, not only has he neglected the things of God, not only has he failed to love the Lord as God with all of his heart, but he has squandered his time, misused his talents, and lived entirely for himself. Number 4. He encountered a mighty famine. Verse 14. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. Verse 14. That land is a far country. It is a world. That world which is away from God, and which in consequence lies in the wicked one. And in that land there is a mighty famine all the while. It is to be noted, however, that we are told there arose a mighty famine in that land. It was not so there always. The famine arose. When man became separated from God, at the fall, the famine is reference to the fact that there is nothing whatever in this world that can minister to a man's soul. He began to be in want. Verse 14. Here, in the history of a sinner who is saved eventually, is where hope begins. There are many living in this far country today where there is a mighty famine. But the tragic thing is that they are unconscious of it. They are satisfied with what they find here. They are sensible of no need which this world fails to meet. It is only after God begins his work upon the soul that the sinner discovers that everything here is only vanity and vexation of spirit. 
Happy the one who has reached this point. Happy the one who has begun to be in want. Happy the one who is conscious of an aching void in his heart, of a yearning in his soul, of a need in his spirit, which the things of this world and the pleasures of sin have failed to satisfy. Such an one is not far from the kingdom. Nevertheless, the beginning to be in want is but the initial experience. There are other experiences, painful ones, to be passed through before the sinner actually comes to God. Let us follow further the history of the prodigal son, which so accurately traces the course pursued by each of us. Verse 15. He went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. How true to life. Notice. He did not decide at once to return to his father. Dad did not come until later. Instead of returning to the father, he turned to man for relief and went to work. For as we read, he, the citizen of that country, sent him into the field to feed swine. Does a Christian reader need an interpreter here? Does not his own past experience supply the key to the meaning of verse 15? The beginning to be in want finds its counterpart in the first awakening of the soul, or to use other terms it corresponds to conviction of sin. And when the soul has been awakened, when it has been convicted of sin, when it has been made conscious of a want not yet supplied, why does such an one invariably do? Did you, dear reader, turn at once to the Savior? Not if your experience was anything like that of the writer and the vast majority of other Christians he has talked with. If your experience corresponds in any wise with his and theirs, after you were first awakened, you began to attempt to work out a righteousness of your own. You betook yourself to the work of reformation, and to aid you in this, you turned a man for counsel and help, and unless the sovereign grace of God overruled it, instead of seeking help from a real Christian, who, if he had intelligence in the things of God, would at once have urged you to search the scripture to discover God's remedy. He turned to some professing Christian who in reality was only a citizen of that country, the world. And if he turned to such an one, he did for you precisely what we read here in the parable. He sent you to feed swine. Allowing scripture to interpret scripture, the swine here represents professing Christians who ultimately apostatize. See Second Peter 2, verse 20-22. The one to whom you went for advice told you that what you needed to do was to engage in Christian service, work, for the Lord, get busy in helping others. In this, while you were still dead in trespasses and sins, perhaps you were asked to teach a class of unsaved children in the Sunday school or to be an officer of a young people's society, the majority of whom were probably like yourself unsaved, and thus you fed the swine. Verse 17, he came to himself, and he would fain have filled his belly with the hawks that the swine ate, and no man gave to him. And when he came to himself, he said, and so on, verses 16 and 17, and again we say, how true to life. What did this join in of himself to a citizen of that country and his working in the field amount to? What relief did it bring to his hungry soul? just nothing. All there was for him there were the husks that the swine ate. And what did all your labors as an awakened but unregenerate sinner amount to? What relief did they afford your poor heart? None, whatever. 
All your zeal and sacrifices in your so-called Christian service provided you with nothing but husks, the same husks that the swine ate. And how pathetic are the words that follow next, and no man gave to him. Ah, the need of the awakened sinner lies deeper than any man can reach to. It is this lesson that the sinner must next be taught. He must learn to turn away from man and look to Christ himself. It is not until he does this that there will be any relief. And when he came to himself, this means that he had recovered his sanity, for previously he was beside himself out of his mind. The scriptures represent the sinner as suffering from spiritual insanity, and regeneration as the bestowment of a right mind. In Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, the saints of God are exhorted to walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Again in Mark 5, we have in the demoniac a type of the sinner in bondage to Satan, who when delivered by our Lord is seen sitting and clothed and in his right mind. Finally, in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, the change with the new birth produces is described in the following terms. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Insanity is a lack of capacity to think correctly, and to form proper estimates of ourselves and others. It is a suffering from various forms of hallucination. An unmistakable evidence of insanity is that the one whose mind is deranged is quite ignorant of the fact, and supposes himself to be all right. What is true in the natural realm has its counterpart in the spiritual. The sinner's understanding is darkened. His mind is full of strange delusions. He is unable to arrive at correct conclusions. And what is the saddest part of it all is that he is totally unconscious of his spiritual disease. But when the Holy Spirit of God has worked upon a man, these hallucinations are removed. The darkness is taken away from his understanding, and like the prodigal, he comes to himself. Verse 18, he said, I will arise and go to my father. It is not until after the sinner has been made to feel the mighty famine that exists in the far country. It is not until he has discovered that no man can give to him and it is not until he has come to himself that he begins to reason aright and remind himself that in his father's house there is a bread enough and a spare. And it is only then that he declares, I will arise and go to my father. Which means it is only then that the will begins to move Godwards. And what is the next thing that we read? Why, that the prodigal not only determines to arise and go to his father, but he announces that he will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. In other words, he is now willing to take the place of a lost sinner before God. That is what repentance is. But he is still legalistic. I will say, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. Verses 18 and 19. Applying the language of this to the history of the sinner coming to God, we here reach the point where, though the Holy Spirit has done much for the awakened one, discovering his need and enlightening his mind, directing his will and producing conviction, the work of grace is not yet complete. The sinner is now deeply conscious of his own utter unworthiness, but not yet 
as he learned of the marvelous grace of God which more than meets his deep need. This comes out in the fact that the highest conception that the mind of the returning prodigal rose to was that of being made one of the hired servants. How legalistic the mind of man is, how tenaciously he clings to his own performances, how strenuously will he contend for the need of bringing in his own works. A higher servant is one who has to work for all he gets. Number 10. He arose and came to his father. Verse 20. Blessed be his name. God does not cease his patient work within us until this point has been reached. Dull of comprehension, though we are, our minds are at enmity against him, our wills essentially opposed to him. He graciously perseveres with us until our understandings have been enlightened. Our enmity has been removed, our will so subdued that we arise and come to him. And what was the reception the prodigal met with? Do you know what portion was meted out to a prodigal son under the law? Read with me the following passage. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him will not hearken to them, then shall his father and mother lay hold on him and bring him out into the elders of his city, into the gate of his place. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard, and all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. How then did the father receive this prodigal? And this brings us to consider the prodigal's reception. How many an exercise heart has wondered what sort of a reception he would meet with if he came to God. Blessed is it to ponder the closing portion of the third part of this matchless parable and expounding the significance of what is recorded of this prodigal son. As he departed from the father, we have seen portrayed the representative experiences of the sinner. As we turn now to the happy sequel, we shall see that what happened to him as he returned to the father also pictures the hearty welcome he received. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. How inexpressibly blessed this is. Five things, a number of grace, are here predicated of his father. First, when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. And what does this tell us? What did the father was looking out for him? The father was eagerly waiting for him. And how keen are love's eyes? Even while he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. But how solemnly this brings out the distance in which by nature we were from God. Even after the sinner has come to himself and turned his back upon the far country, and has set his face homewards, he is yet a great way off. Nevertheless, all praise to his sovereign grace. Second, his father had compassion. The prodigal must have presented a miserable appearance. He had devoured his living with harlots, the illicit love for the things of the world. Instead of loving God with all our hearts, he has suffered the effects of the mighty famine and he had gone out into the fields to feed swine. What a pitiable object he must have been, yet did his father have compassion on him. And, oh, dear Christian reader, how did you and I look just before the father received us? Understandings darkened, hearts desperately wicked, wills rebellious, 
His great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Third, his father ran to meet him. We do not read of the prodigal running as he set out to return to his father. All that is said of him is that he arose and came to his father, but of the father it is said that he ran. Do you know, dear reader, that this is the only verse in all the Bible which represents God as being in a hurry? In the restoration of the ruined earth, he acted orderly, we might say leisurely, and everything else but this, God is viewed as acting with calmness and deliberation as befits one who has all eternity as his disposal. But here is what we term the impatience of divine love. Fourth, his father fell on his neck. He not only saw him while well, a great way off, he not only had compassion on this begotten prodigal, he not only ran to meet him, but he fell on his neck. He embraced him flung around him the welcoming arms of love. Fifth, his father kissed him. Once more we would point out that nothing is said here of the son kissing the father. It is the father who takes the lead at every stage. He kissed him. He did not rebuff him. He kissed him. He did not beat him to part. He kissed him. He did not chide him for his wanderings. What marvelous grace! How all this reveals a father's heart. The kiss speaks of love, of reconciliation, of intimate fellowship. The prodigal's response. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no more worthy to be called your son. Notice three things first. He is deeply conscious of his sinful condition, and he hesitates not to confess it. And the nearer we approach the thrice holy God, the clearer shall we perceive our vileness. Second, he was profoundly convinced of his unworthiness and did not delay to own it. It is a discovery of the marvelous grace of God which brings us to a deeper realization of how thoroughly undeserving we are, for grace and merit are as much opposed to each other as light and darkness. Third, observe that he says nothing new about being made a hired servant. No, the wondrous grace of the Father had taught him better. Next, a robe that was put upon him. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. There are four things to be noted here. First, the position the son yet occupied. We cannot but admire the marvelous accuracy and beauty of every line in this divinely drawn picture. The previous verses have shown us a happy meeting between the father and the son. The father's hearty welcome. The son's broken-hearted confession and this, be it remembered, is viewed as occurring some distance away from the father's house, for he ran out to meet him. Now as the father and son draw near to the house, the father calls to his servants and says, Bring forth the best robe. Ah, the father could not have the prodigal at his table in filthy rags. No, that would be setting aside the righteous requirements of his house. Grace reigns through righteousness, Romans 5.21, and never at the expense of it. Beautiful it is, then, to behold grace which ran out to meet the prodigal, and now the righteousness which makes provision for the covering of his filthy rags. Secondly, we behold with thankful hearts the provision that is made for the poor wanderer. Note carefully that the prodigal did not bring his robe with him out of the far country, nor did he procure it on his homeward journey. No, indeed, it was provided for him, was furnished by the father. It was there ready for him, waiting for him. Third, 
admire the quality of the clothing provided for him. The father said, Bring forth the best robe. What marvelous grace was this! The best robe in the father's house was reserved for the prodigal. And what can this signify but that the sinner saved by grace shall be robed in a garment more glorious than that worn by the unfallen angels? But, we exclaim, can such a thing be? Is that possible? And it reads, What is this best robe? Why it is the imputed righteousness of Christ himself which shall cover the filthy rags of our righteousness? That imputed righteousness which was wrought out for us in the perfect obedience and vicarious death of our Savior. How remarkable is it to notice that this best robe was the first thing which the prodigal received at the hands of his father. Right here is the answer to the objection made by those who reject the evangelical interpretation of this parable. For in the best robe, we have that which speaks of the life and death of Christ. Fourth, notice that the best robe was placed upon him. Everything was done for him. Not only was the best robe provided for him, but it was also placed upon him. How this reminds us of what we read in Genesis 3 verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. The Lord God only himself supplied the coats of skins, but he clothed our first parents. We find the same thing again in Zechariah 3 verse 4. Take away the filthy garment from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you, and I will close you with a change of raiment. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Next, notice the ring placed upon his hand. Again, we notice that the ring was not supplied by him, but provided for him. And also it was not handed to him, but put on him. Not a thing did he do for himself. And of what does the ring put on his hand speak? The ring is a seal of love, of plighted troth. Later it becomes a symbol of a wedded union. And is it not true that the returning sinner receives not only the best robe of Christ's imputed righteousness, but also God's seal, which seal is the Holy Spirit himself? Next, the shoes provided for his feet. And the shoes on his feet, verse 22. Once more we are constrained to say how marvelously complete is this lovely parabolic picture. Here we see every need of the believer met the kiss of reconciliation to assure him of a hearty welcome, the best robe to cover his filthy rags, the ring put on his hand to show that he belongs to God, and to note that his labors henceforth must be in the power of the Spirit. And now the shoes for his feet speak of God's provision for the daily walk. In given instructions to Moses concerning the observance of the Passover, the Lord said, And thus shall you eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, in your staff, in your hand, Exodus 12:11. They were not prepared to go forth on their pilgrimage until shoes were on their feet. And how blessed is the sequel. Forty years later, Moses reminded them that though the Lord had led them for forty years in the wilderness, your clothes are not waxen old upon you, and your shoe is not waxen old upon your foot. So again, when the Lord sent forth the twelve, he said to them, Be shod with sandals. Ephesians 6, it says, Believers are exhorted to put on the whole armor of God. One of the specifications is, in your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Not until our feet are thus shed are we prepared to go forth with the gospel of God's grace to a perishing world. It is exceedingly blessed to contrast these two passages. Their feet, the wicked, run to evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood, Isaiah 59, 7. 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good things of good, that publishes salvation, Isaiah 52.7. And the fatted calf killed and eaten, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. First, note the contrast between the words of the Father in connection with the best robe, and here with the fatted calf. In a former it was, bring forth which indicated that the prodigal was on the outside. But now that he has been clothed, now that he has put on him the best robe, now that he has been suitably adorned for the Father's presence, made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, Colossians 1.12, he is now inside the Father's house. Hence, to bring here, how marvelously and minutely accurate 